Coming up on Tech Nation, could smart technology be what we need to bring us back to safe workplaces? From social distancing to automatic contact tracing, overly crowded points of contact, and more, we'll hear from Tanuj Mohan, the co-founder and chief technology officer of Enlighted, a Siemens company based in Silicon Valley. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about our sociome. That's right, where we live, how we live, and our environment. It impacts our health substantially, and healthcare is responding. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, I interviewed National Medal of Technology winner Ray Kurzweil about his book, How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. In it, he writes... The story of human intelligence starts with a universe that is capable of encoding information. We have a world based on information, and he's not talking about the digital kind. There's a lot of debate as to how we ended up in the universe that can encode information. Uh, some people use the anthropic principle that if it wasn't the case, we wouldn't be here and wouldn't be talking about it. But th that allowed evolution and evolution has evolved more and more complex creatures that eventually evolved a nervous system. And those nervous systems ultimately evolved a neocortex, which is capable of thinking in hierarchies to reflect the natural hierarchy of the world. This first emerged in mammals. It was the size of a postage stamp and as thin as a postage stamp and little rodents. Uh, not very noticeable, but it allowed these animals to actually learn new skills that were complicated and hierarchical uh, without having to go through thousands of years of biological evolution to change their behavior. But then, 65 million years ago, there was this cataclysmic event called the Cretaceous Extinction Event, and we can see archaeological evidence of that everywhere in the world. Something happened very dramatic to change the environment very quickly, and uh, animals, non-mammalian species that did not have a neocortex died out. Many of them did, uh, and that's when mammals took over their this ecological niche. And to anthropomorphize, biological evolution said, hey, this neocortex is pretty useful, and they start growing it uh, as mammals got more complex. And by primates, it was no longer flat. It was very convoluted. If you, you know, know what the brain of a primate looks like, it has many ridges and convolutions to increase its surface area. It's still a very thin structure. If you were to stretch out a human neocortex, it'd be about the size of, size of a table napkin and just as thin. But because of its, all of these curvatures and convolutions, it's about 80% of the brain. And it's where we do our thinking, and we think in, in hierarchies. And the big innovation in, in Homo sapiens is we have this big forehead. We could squeeze in more neocortex, and that was the enabling factor to, that permitted the development of language. Art and science and music, uh, no other invention, technology, no other species does that. Other primates began to do a little bit of it. They have some primitive language and tool-making skills, but only humans can really build this, this fantastic hierarchy. And now we're actually using that scientific ability to understand 
the best example of human intelligence, which is the human brain. And it's really only in the last couple of years that we can see inside a human brain with enough precision to see what's going on. And we can see our brain create our thoughts. We can see our thoughts create our brain. That's key to how the neocortex works. The connections between these different pattern recognition modules, which is part of my thesis, uh, that represents the hierarchy of our concepts, uh, we create ourselves from the moment we're born and even before that. We're laying down these this conceptual hierarchy from very primitive recognitions like the crossbar in a capital A or the edge of an object up to things like, she's pretty, you know, that was ironic. They're actually done by the same recognizers, except that those high-level recognizers exist at the top of this conceptual hierarchy. And the hierarchy is created by actual wiring of actual dendrites and, and axons between these different modules. Uh, I estimated we have about 300 million pan recognizers. They each have about 100 neurons. So the basic unit is not a neuron. It's a, it's a module of about 100 neurons that can recognize a pattern and that can build these connections to other modules. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with Ray Kurzweil, the author of How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. Today, Ray Kurzweil is the chief futurist at Google. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, how smart buildings are able to pivot to make public places safer for everyone. I speak with Tanuj Mohan, co-founder and chief technology officer of Enlighted, a Siemens company enabling the management of social distancing, digital contact tracing, points of contact, and more. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about something called your sociome, your environment, how you live and where you live. It all adds up to an impact on your health. And now, Tanuj Mohan. Welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me, Myra. Um, you know, it's exciting to be in the city. When you come in the building, you can look out there. There's the bay, you know. It looks, yeah, it's beautiful. It looks like nothing changed when you look at the bay. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> it took me 20 minutes less than normal to get here, so. Things are different. different yeah. Things are different. Well, we're all hopefully on our way back to work in some form, but with social distancing, the same number of people don't fit in the same space they did before. And some folks can work from home. How's all that going to work? You know, it's funny. We, we have an application we call Space. And that was designed to utilize spaces better. And we would proudly go and tell building owners and uh, Fortune 500 companies that their spaces are no more than 50% utilized. And uh, they could fit a lot more people into their existing space. So there was a lot of savings that could be had from their real estate portfolio. And from a sustainability point, the best building is the one that wasn't built. So 
if you could get to you know utilizing our spaces more efficiently uh, things would be really nice and suddenly you know we had uh, green for well used spaces and red for poorly used spaces and orange for moderately used spaces and suddenly we flipped that <laughs> you know the same the, same map different same colors same map different <laughs> interpretation the red are good spaces where you're you're having social distancing but uh, but yes it's it's a complete change we were talking about hot desking hoteling and these were the concepts that were you know all the facility managers all around the globe were talking about they were building the office of the future where nobody has an assigned desk and the desks were a lot smaller and everything was digital on the desk so as you checked in you got some customization for yourself and uh, we were trying to have uh, whatever you know seven desks per 10 people and that was the norm because not everybody is in every day and now we are talking about two three people per 10 desks and uh, that is how many people will fit in a normal space if you you know have social distancing so a lot has changed now let me ask you this it's like when you do go in when people are together they're saying there can only be this many people together or they say okay we're going to go into the conference room and have a meeting how do you do that so a lot of it is first figuring out what happens in the space and what the space was designed for and in some sense quartering that so if your conference room just was you know designed for eight people maybe you should have no more than two and three people in the space and that kind of that's that's how you start thinking that's when you can maintain the right amount of social distancing uh, just you know when i was coming in uh, i was looking at an airflow simulation for a conference room and trying to figure out in a conference room what are the best spaces to sit and it turned out the best space to sit is right under the inlet vent where the air is coming in and then there are some recirculation zones where the air spins around in the conference room so you could have one in each recirculation zone so he's breathing his own air but you don't want two people in that recirculation zone and somehow i mean it just works out that the 6 foot social distancing kind of matches the size of that recirculation zone also so if you you know do it correctly and you do the 6 foot uh, you know square around the person in all directions you would probably get to the right recirculation zones also so i know some companies are saying you come to work on this day and you come to work on that day is that very effective uh, i think they have finally gotten it right what i was thinking when we started is that we'll have a team a and a team b so that not everybody in a team gets sick so you split up so that you have some redundancy in your workforce and you have them you know some people coming in two days you clean one day and then the other people come in two days uh, but given how this uh, virus spreads it has a pre symptomatic stage that you might develop the symptoms but two days before you develop the symptoms you are uh, you know you could uh, infect others and then there are the asymptomatic people so somewhere i think between 4 and 14 days is when uh, you know you can uh, infect other people so there is this new two week kind of system that i've seen that team a comes in for four days and then team b comes next week for four days and then team a repeats two weeks later so in some sense in those four days you are safe 
and you would have shown the symptoms two weeks later and self-quarantined. And the two teams have no interaction whatsoever. So the three, four days that the building is empty, the Monday, Tuesday, I mean, sorry, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, viruses on surfaces, even if they weren't cleaned properly, are unlikely to have survived the three days. So that is one of the best systems I have seen that uh, is just coming out. Of course, all of us now are pretty clear that we're not going to go back to normal in terms of our personal safety, uh, whether it's masks or gloves or wipes or you name it. There's all kinds of things to do. And you were sharing with me a personal story if you don't mind, about uh, one of your children. She's, I guess, 20 or so now. Yeah, so. she's, she's 19. She's and, 19. Uh, so, the, so the result was, this result <laughs> has been proven to be terrific, but you had an experience 20 years ago to yes. teach you about that. So my older daughter was premature, and my wife's water broke a month before she was born. And normally when you know, your water breaks, they induce labor. But because uh, you know, our daughter was premature, they said it is safer for the mother to keep the baby in the womb and grow it for another couple of weeks than to deliver the baby right now. So she was admitted in the hospital and she spent the last month in the hospital. And I was the only person that was visiting her you know, and coming from the outside world. And I was the biggest risk to the baby because I could carry infection back and forth. So at that time, I developed a touchless system, I call it, that I simply will not fall sick, won't catch a cold, and I developed this system where I would you know, have a antiseptic Purell small bottle in my pocket. When I walked through doors, I would not you know, touch the door with my hand if I could avoid it. I, sometimes I would wait for people to open the door and I would sneak in beside them. And sometimes they were worried because the door is shutting what looks like in my face, but I had my foot you know, <laughs> stuck out there to stop it. And they say, what? You're not raising your hand? And they would jump back to hold the door for me. I said, no, no, I got it with my foot. You know, I'm just not touching this door. And, and then you know, I would have these tissues in my pocket. My back right pocket was the clean tissues. So if I couldn't, uh, I had to touch something, I would take a small piece of paper out. I would and you mean just like a tissue? like Yes, yeah, one piece of paper like the one in my hand, and I would I just see. tear a small piece off, whatever is the minimum size required for me to get past that surface. And uh, I would get past the surface, fold it so that the, the touch surface is on the inside, and then put it in my back left pocket, remembering that's my dirty pocket, and I'll throw it away as soon as I get a chance. Uh, so for years, I developed this system even after my daughter was born, and made sure that she followed this system and she saw it. And at one time, the teacher called us and said, your daughter wants to wash her hands all the time. What's happening? He said, oh, she just touched this box of crayons that all the other kids had touched. So she said, no, no, I have to go wash my hands now. <laughs> so, so I think for her first five, six years, she never fell sick. I didn't actually fall sick for maybe 10 years after that uh, with no cold, nothing, because I just inherited this, uh, you know, I would call it a surgeon-like approach that, you know, I'm going in for a surgery and I can't afford to transmit anything to the patient. Even while flying, I would turn on the air above me, even if it was cold. And people around me would say, hey, it's cold, can you turn it off? And I would say, I, you know, I said, I'm claustrophobic, which I am slightly, and I'll hyperventilate if, if this air is not right there. 
on top of me. So they were like, okay, okay. But really, it was to make sure that the airflow was away from me, and uh, I mean that that is key. And I realized those things, you know, over the last ten years that it's all about either surfaces or the air we breathe, and just taking care of both of those things is what once you internalize. And it's not about washing your hands. And people say, wash your hands, wash your hands. I said, it's about the surfaces you touch. If you're going to go into the restroom 10 times and touch the handle on your way out, you are exposing yourself even more. The washing your hands was useless. You wash your hands when your hands are, quote, unquote, contaminated. They've touched a surface that is not clean. Uh-huh. And so I, I tell people that, you know, I know these. there are reasons for why people say these things, but they need to understand why. There's no point washing your hands and then shutting the tap with your hand again and using the door handle merrily to walk out. You need to make sure that when you shut the tap, you're touching a tissue and you're using a tissue on your way out or you wait for somebody else who's coming in to open the door. So So you need need two pockets, too. You need two pockets, too. (laughs) But they've gotten a lot better. I see a lot of restrooms that now have a little bin right outside the door so they know people are using the tissue to uh, to open the door and, and throw it away. So a lot of this is starting to come in in our regular uh, uh, you know way of behaving. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Tanuj Mohan, co-founder and chief technology officer of Enlighted, a Siemens company based in Silicon Valley. Enlighted is working in the area of safer workplaces, including social distancing, digital contact tracing, occupancy limits, and points of contact. Now, the experience that you were just ex- describing to me is not why you're at Enlightened or co-founded. You're an engineer. I am an engineer, <laughs> you yes. You are truly an engineer. So so let me ask you, before all this happened, Enlighted was founded. You were working along. Siemens found you, bought you. This was all before COVID-19. Yeah. What business were you in? What were you doing? So... It started with sustainability. I remember sitting in uh, a large networking company office and uh, and I realized the entire building was functioning when there was one person in the building. The HVAC was on, the lights were on everywhere, the parking lot was active. And I tried to find out why. And then I realized that the sensing and the controls are not connected. So the HVAC system doesn't really know if there's one person in the space or 10 people or where they are. Same thing with the lighting system. Yeah, there's a big zone. And if there's one person or five people, the entire zone is lit. So I realized there was a disconnect in how we were doing buildings. And uh, and that from a network management background, this just looked like a standard networking problem where you think about the future, you put devices out there that are software upgradable, that have headroom, so they can do something new tomorrow. And it was kind of a perfect storm. At the same time, LEDs were becoming prevalent and a huge retrofit of the older building stock as well as the newer buildings were moving to LEDs. And and this was, uh, you know, cutting the energy consumption by half. But we realized at the same time, if you put in an infrastructure that is a learning infrastructure for a building to make it a smart building, it can not only solve the first application we built, which was lighting, lighting control, and HVAC, but it could gather data that could power more valuable things in the building. So 
you know, energy has a certain cost. The space itself, the rent on the space is an order of magnitude more. And then the tasks that are performed and what the human being does, their salaries, etc., are another order of magnitude more. So if you can actually optimize why the building was built in the first place, it was built for you and me or for a task being performed. It wasn't built for energy efficiency. So if you could make improvements to the human being's productivity, his safety, or the tasks being performed in the building, you know, helping, uh, uh, you know, robots navigate properly, you are actually, you know, building an ROI, a return on investment far greater than energy. So when we built the system, we looked into the future. The, the buildings that uh, are around us today were motivated by cost and code. By it, code, you mean like the building code? By the theory? building code, exactly right. So a builder is going to give you a building, and value engineering is a good word for him. So as, as it comes towards the end of the building, he's kind of over budget, things are getting delayed, and he tries and squeezes the last bits of you know, uh, technology that's going into the building. And all he wants to do is deliver the building that meets code. And it gets hand, handed off to a tenant that may or may not be known at that time. And it's not optimized for the tenant's operations because you don't know whether the tenant is a retail store, it's a, you know, it's a search engine company, or what, what, what is it going to be? So there's a kind of a disconnect. It is the, the system is bought in the operating technologies or building technologies world. And the benefits are in the information technologies to the actual the actual business. So we 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 had to bridge this gap, and we made sure that uh, the systems we put in today met the code and could deliver value to the end tenant in the future. So it's like a it's like the iPhone, you know, or an Android phone, where earlier you had a flip phone and you could make voice calls with it, and it became a little fancy when you could text. But the first person who bought an iPhone didn't really know what it can do in the future. You know, the software on it, the apps on it, you know, the... the, the they never the, thought of Twitter. <laughs> they never thought of a lot of this stuff. They never thought of it. It's like, uh, you know, it's like the, uh, the camera that faces you. And it was meant for things like FaceTime, etc. So when you're on a call, you can have FaceTime. But who knew it would create this selfie phenomena where I believe there are more selfies taken than any other form of picture taking. <laughs> and that camera had to get a lot better. You know, earlier it was just, hey, you're a few feet away, I just want to show you a face. And now people are using that camera as their primary source of taking pictures. So again, you just are future-proofing and you don't know what it will be used for. So that's how, where we came from. We said that you know, we have one opportunity of getting something up in the ceiling, a grid that covers the building. And we want to put as much technology as we possibly can afford that will serve the building and its occupants for the next 10 years. And it so happened that, you know, we were able to do a lot with the data. Uh, just one story I would share that uh, I was in a meeting where value engineering was happening and I was called in. And they were asking me why they couldn't put one sensor in the conference room and why I needed four sensors. And they were trying to value engineer the entire project. And I was lucky that... Uh, I went into an existing building that had been deployed a few years ago and, and, and showed them what the building was doing at 3 a.m. one night. And the, you could see just by the motion that there were a few people in the building, in a certain part of the building. And a few seconds later, 
sensors all over the building, they're all time synchronized, were firing randomly. And it looked like something weird was happening, electrical glitch, lightning storm, whatever. And, uh, you know, our data scientists flagged it saying, hey, something happened, some event happened, we need to figure out what it was. And then we replayed what was happening on all the sensors. And what we saw is that a few seconds later, these two people ran out of the building. Again, all completely anonymous. These sensors were initially deployed as a lighting control system, but they were sending second-by-second -second motion data, and you could see the speed of the person running simply based on the, the rate of fire. So yo, the guy, two people ran out of the building, and then it struck me earthquake. <laughs> so that's the demo I showed the general contractor and said, look, we are in California. If you value engineer this, somebody might die because of your decision. You know, we might have a building come down, and this data could have had the first responders go to the right spot, save time, and get the person out. And he looked at it, and he said, he backed off. He said, yeah, I see. I know this app is not ready today. It's not tied in with the first responders, but the data is there. And somebody, at some point, will build this. And, and I think that's the exciting part. Now, with the COVID pandemic, a uh, whole another set of applications has shown up in the buildings that we had already installed. So you're taking the data from the existing buildings and you're able to apply it. What changes, what kind of insights are you getting from that data that apply to today? So uh, there were two types of future-proofing. One was the basic emotion sense I talked about that tells us about how the space is used. It's, it tells us how people flow through the building, you know, which direction they walk, where there is cross traffic and people might be coming face to face, which areas of the building, cafeterias, conference rooms seem to be highly utilized, or where you might want to post signs because people seem to pass that aisle very frequently. So this data was available on all the buildings today, and it is feeding into the, the facility managers and the real estate folks to figure out how they, how they create one-ways which, which desks they might close off, which conference rooms they might stick occupancy limits on. And we could enforce those occupancy limits in real time by, by, by analyzing the data that's coming out in real time from those. Because uh, you know, you don't have somebody checking. They, they do. Suddenly the lights are off. <laughs> Correct. So it's like in this conference room, you know, if we had four sensors and I'm at one end and you're at the other end, and if I'm moving, the sensor overhead is firing. If you're moving, the sensor overhead is firing. And we kind of know, hey, there are two people. Correct. And if there, were, if there were two more people in this room, you would figure out that there were four people in this room and you might be able to alert the system. So that was being used already. But we introduced a Bluetooth radio as an additional radio in our grid. And we picked Bluetooth because the cell phones have a Bluetooth radio and Wi-Fi. And this is a short-distance communication. It is a short-distance communication. Ten feet? How long? How far is it? Uh, it can go up to 100, 150 oh, really? feet. Okay. But it depends on the power. Typically, you would use it for short range. It's, it's the Bluetooth is, is the communication you use when you connect your phone to your car or you have a wireless headset. Those, those are where Bluetooth is typically used. And it's typically used for 5, 10 feet. But the technology itself, if you transmit with more power, you could go a lot further. I've been speaking with Tanuj Mohan, co-founder and chief technology officer 
of Enlighted, a Siemens company based in Silicon Valley. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Amazon Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the social determinants of your health. Your physical environment makes a marked difference. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Tanuj Mohan, co-founder and chief technology officer of Enlighted, a Siemens company based in Silicon Valley. It's like your employee badge, and your badge might have the Bluetooth radio in it. And when you move, there might be an accelerometer that wakes up your badge, and it beacons. It's a beacon is just a transmit says, "I'm alive," and the sensor grid overhead listens to that beacon, and in real time, sends all this data to the cloud, and the cloud computes where that particular beacon is. So let me get this straight. The accelerometer knows you're moving. Yes. And so that kind of wakes it up. It wakes it up. Otherwise, the battery not. would die. But if you're smart, you could use that data to figure out whether it's a small motion or it's Hussein Bolt, you know. You just went to the other end of your cubicle or... Or, or you're walking really fast or you're running. And it could change the rate of transmit so that you can do the location faster. So, again, this is how you think future-proof, that, yes, the accelerometer was initially made to wake up the device. But if you can use that data, you could feed that information into your algorithm that would do a totally different compute cycle if I'm sitting here, you know, nodding my head versus I'm sprinting through the building. Because printing to the building, you need a lot more data to be collected to be able to, to uh, you know, locate the person. Well, what about social distancing? What if you say, I'm going to go over and see Joe. So you get up and you go over and see Joe. But you've known Joe forever and it doesn't got a problem. And you're really not six feet apart. Are you really not? Is it, is it that sensitive? It could pick that up? Yes. So we 
we have, uh, depending on the ceiling height, about a one to two meter accuracy. And that is enough for, uh, for uh, social distancing. And you could actually figure out hotspots, et cetera, depending on what you're trying to do. Uh, you could also use it for people counting. If everyone's wearing an employee badge, you would know exactly how many people are in a space, how far apart they are. Uh, and contact tracing is one of the key use cases that comes to mind, that if somebody does contract the disease, you can run a report in history of where the person was in the building and who he came into close proximity with and for how long. And that other person may not even have known. Might not have known. Especially, I, I give the example of a printer or a coffee machine. You know, if I keep visiting the coffee machine and I've been sneezing or whatever, and uh, you know, I've been adjusting my mask all through the day and my fingers are not as clean as they should be, all the buttons on the co coffee machine might have my droplets or whatever. And uh, the next person who comes in might not realize it and uh, might get the disease, but I've never seen you. But the very fact that I take six cups of coffee a day and you take five, <laughs> but we just uh, staggered by half an hour because I see that. I see the same people in the cafeteria. <laughs> and there's another set of people who see each other depending on their cycles. But that's important. And also, you know, with hoteling and those other concepts. Now, is, hoteling, what is that? Hoteling is a way where you don't have a fixed desk and you, you have a reservation system and you are guided to a desk, maybe a different desk every day. So that was a way of utilizing the building a lot more. Is that the same thing as hot desking? It's the same as hot desking. Okay, so, just another way. Yeah, yeah, there's name. another way. There are three or four different terms I used in the, <laughs> in the industry. So, yeah, so one is the space that you might have used, uh, with, uh, shared with somebody else. And then also there might be unknown people around you who, who, who are sitting behind you, etc. And uh, the airflow was such that you didn't realize that everything they were breathing out was coming your way. And, you know, if you sat there for hours at end, you might have been compromised. So. What about restrooms? <laughs> That's tough. It is very tough. So what we did in our office right now was, was something very simple. We put a big sign in front, in use and free. And we just restricted all our restrooms to one person at a time. Now, you could make an automated system, et cetera, but to give feedback to the individual, the only way is to use the cell phone. And hopefully not too many people take their cell phones into the restroom. Uh, so, you know, you might have left your cell phone in your purse back in your office. So there's no way to give live feedback. So sometimes you have to resort to very simple techniques like a, you know, in-use or free sign. Yeah. And occasionally you come back three times and the in-use sign is still there. You open the door and shout, is anybody in there? No? Okay, you go and leave the sign as it is and make sure that when you come out, you say it's free. It's free. So the idea probably in the future is we're going to see more and more individual restrooms. Yes. I, I, it's so different from how we were going to these, you know, getting rid of all offices. And that was happening everywhere. And everyone is in a cube, and we were doing hot desking. And suddenly you're thinking, hey, maybe those offices were not a bad deal where you have your own inlet and outlet of your air, and you have four walls around you, and uh, you can sneeze all you want, and <laughs> not, everyone around you is not going to go super paranoid, etc. So I, I don't know where this is going. I think a lot of people are going to start working from home, and uh, 
from fun places. Uh, yeah, they don't have to be in expensive cities. And they have realized they can be sitting on a beach working and, uh, you know, have the right work-life balance. I think coming out of this, a lot of people are going to re not only rethink their businesses and their real estate portfolio, but even their lives. I think individuals are going to rethink, whoa, you know, what's truly important to them. So, uh, you know, the, coming back to sustainability, I just love seeing how, how blue the skies are. We are seeing butterflies around in our neighborhood that I hadn't seen for years. So nature's coming back. So, you know, every cloud. Mountain is, lions in San Francisco. Yeah. A yeah. cougar. <laughs> we, got, I mean, we got a lot of things. A yeah, lot of very the, interesting things going silver on lining. now. I mean, silver I lining. Silver lining. I can say. Silver lining. Um, one of the things that everyone kind of jokes about is their home, you know, in the first couple of weeks, it's like all this adjustment. But then the uh, then suddenly people started working on their homes. <laughs> more and more things change. Oh, I got to wallpaper that. Oh, I got to fix that. Oh, I want to change this. And uh, almost everyone in that situation goes to one of these big stores like a Home Depot or a Lowe's or and um I was talking to someone in line, socially distanced, <laughs> when I happened to go there. And they said, well, how bad could it be? Look how big the sea high the ceilings are. And yet there, there are still problems in a really big store. What can you do in a really sort of a, a big box store? And where are the problems? Yeah, so I'll take that from a building perspective first, from a smart infrastructure perspective. Uh, a lot of what happened in the retail market was privacy first. You know, everyone became super conscious of maintaining, you know, consumer privacy. And uh, all the cameras and a lot of those things that were everywhere that were used for facial recognition to track you through the stores, all of them kind of became not all right at some point in time. But, uh, but stores have gone through LED retrofits, uh, and big box retail typically have uh, light fixtures with a lot of wattage. So moving to LEDs is very good for them. It's sustainable. But at the same time, it's the right time to put in a smart building infrastructure in, to put in sensors that can uh, solve problems for them. And we were looking at a you know, number of interesting uh, use cases uh, uh, pre-COVID. Uh, it was that you know when you were on a website, whatever, uh, your favorite shopping website, they know exactly where you clicked, how long you spent looking at an item and where you have been, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when you are inside a store, they have no idea what you did when you came in. They only know when you left and that too when you bought something when you left. If you left without buying anything, then they never knew of your visit. So this data is what the stores would like to gather and see what they can do, just like the online you know, optimization. How could they optimize their brick and mortar business? Uh, so we, 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 we have seen a number of studies that are public. Uh, there's one study that says that uh, if you're in the refrigerator or appliance section, yeah, you're typically hopefully not browsing uh, a microwave. <laughs> you're there to buy one. Uh, and those are the high ticket items for some of these stores. And if, and if an associate comes by and pitches you and talks to you about your various options, it is very likely that you will buy from that store. So for us, we said, well, maybe we, we, we can't 
locate the consumer. Let's say we can't. But the motion sensors picks up activity in that space and we say, hey, there's somebody there. And if all the employees... Are over the, having coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. And the guy might walk out because he didn't get the help he wanted. And so the employees might be wearing these badges that are employee badges. They, you may or may not know who the employee is. It just says employee badge. And the system might say, hey, is there an employee close to a potential consumer moving in the appliance section? Yes or no. If it's no, you might send an alert to the store. The store manager might have an alerting system, you know, whatever. Appliances associate to appliance section, and they just might do, uh, you know, <laughs> you hear these announcements all the time in some of these big box retail to make sure that the interaction happens in the first few minutes. I have been to... You know, these stores, many times we just remodeled our house. And and sometimes you go looking for a paint and the color and things like that, and you just pick up a whole bunch of chips. You actually don't buy anything. But as you were saying, you pick up your Mr. Clean and you pick up, <laughs> you know, a <laughs> yeah. few other things that are there as impulse buys and you're ready to check out. But if you see that the lines are too long, you said, ah, maybe I'll go and buy it from somewhere else. And you leave them all, you know, close to the checkout and walk out. So, so another use case would be, well, because if you actually just measure the lines, it's too late. Because you saw the line from a distance and left. So this is where you could look at saying, hey, you know, there's a lot of activity in the store. It's not normal. Maybe we should, you know, have more of the checkout counters manned so these impulse buys happen. Then along comes COVID. Do you think that they'll be putting sensors on these carts that, that go through just Definitely. to tell where everybody is? That is, uh, it's just like the badge on the employee. You could stick a Bluetooth beacon, accelerometer driven beacon on every cart. And now we can track every cart as they move through the space. And this is what comes back to the cookie, like the digital cookie. Now I know where the cart has been through the space, how long it has lingered in every aisle. And when they checked out, what did they buy from the point of sale? And you can correlate the journey of the person through the store with his purchases, and that will give you insights on how to lay out your store better. Or, you know, maybe if 10 people looked at the same thing and didn't buy it, why? Is it not appealing? Is the lighting wrong? Is it priced uh, inappropriately? You know, it, uh, you know, I have, do I have chocolates? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, right next to toilet plungers, and that's why it's not appetite <laughs> appealing to people. Whatever. So, so yes, I think uh, uh, tagging all of the carts and uh, and baskets is a unique way of in real time figuring out which aisles might have a lot of people, and you might want to have one way aisles. I've seen that, and make sure that people go one way, and if, if people aren't going one way, you might have a feedback system with a red light blinking. Because people, you know, in my local grocery store, people don't seem to care. Once they're in, oh, I missed the one-way sign. But if there was a visual response connected to an automated system where the red light starts flashing, you know, in the direction where of the guy who's going the wrong way, he'll back out and turn around and go. Versus, and never oh, I... come back again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this but, is now we got to talk about user experience and especially user privacy. I mean, you can do this without identifying the user, the that, customer. That, I, you know, the the customers and consumers became very privacy aware and very sensitive. 
But what happened over the last couple of years, there's an EU, European Union uh, law called GDPR, where they actually laid out uh, a whole system of what, you know, the rights of the individual are and what businesses and uh, people can or cannot do. And it's built around very simple uh, fundamentals. It's transparency. It's like, I have to tell you what I'm doing. If I'm gathering data about you in the store, you need to be aware of it and you need to give your explicit consent. And then once that is done, they need to make sure that the data is gathered for the purpose and used for the purpose that it was initially intended, so it's not abused. The data is stored in a secure manner that hackers, etc., don't have access to it. And if you want, you can ask for the destruction of that data. So you have to prove that, hey, it's my data. You know, please remove it. And the business has to remove it. So people have, maybe the pendulum has swung a little too far. And with COVID, we sometimes might need to know who the person is for contact tracing. But these set of rules, I think they have a 2% of your annual turnover or 10 million as the tier one fine. And I think the tier two fine is 4% of your annual revenue or 20 million euros. So the fines are substantial if you have a GDPR violation. So I think people should be less scared right now because most businesses, and uh, you know, if you're a Fortune 500 or a Global 2000, we are all taking a lot of care to make sure that the individual privacy is 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 way up there in our list of priorities. So I think people shouldn't be that spooked nowadays. We are maintaining, you know, just like the badges, you could be as anonymous as you want it to be. And it would only be used for the two-week cycle of, you know, for contact tracing and the data would be automatically deleted. And it, it depends on the business, what, you know, the technology is the technology and it is done with privacy and security built in. But the user of it, the person who deploys the technology and how he uses it has the option of figuring out what the right, uh, you know, how far he goes with uh, with personally identifiable information or, or, or not. So the technology can remember, but the technology can also forget. <laughs> no, yes, yes, correct. And that's the operator of the technology. <laughs> no, you're right. It's... When we were talking earlier, you said an existing building can get smarter than it was yesterday. You know, we can install all this. But you said a smart building can get smarter tomorrow than it is today. What do you mean by that? So, and, and, and it took me years to get this message across. I kept hitting the value engineering crowd that said, well, why does it take you so much compute and so many sensors to turn the lights on and off? Most other people can do it with a flip phone. <laughs> I was trying to tell people that a smart building is not a connected building. Just by sending the existing data into the cloud doesn't make a building smart. So for us, we, we, we mimic the the device like a learning device and what is the best learning system around us it's us you know we have our senses we communicate whatever we sense in the environment up to our brain and our brain learns from it and we can sometimes do a fusion of senses that means the first time i touch this red hot surface i touch it i burn my finger the second time, I just visually look at it and says, oh, that's red hot. I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to stay away from it. 
And maybe the third time you smell it and you smell smoke, you say, oh, no, 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 that's hard. It's smoking. So that is kind of the sense of fusion that is done. In the building world, they were all siloed streams. And you did not put intelligence at the end where you could fuse these data streams and learn from them with an upgrade of software. So we repeated this pattern, and the pattern is sensing, and I'll say digital sensing, so that you can, you can change how quickly you sense. So I'll give you an example. Uh, for lighting, you have daylight harvesting. So that means when the sun comes in, you dim the lights. It's a very, very simple sensor which just looks at lighting energy. But you could put a more complex sensor in there. It's the one that's in your cell phone that could look at the red, green, blue, and IR spectrum. And you could sample it many times a second. So what that would do is if I had a blinking red light in this room, in the studio saying, hey, everyone quiet, the sensor could pick up those red blinks because it could see the red spectrum and it could see the blinking pattern. But if you had put a non-digital siloed sensor just for lighting control, you would have put something called a photodiode in that just looked at the energy falling on it and could not be used for any other purpose. So that is the notion of putting a learning device at the end that with different software at the end node can get new insights in the future. So that, that's kind of what we did. So we put a device that had the same components like a human being. It had a brain that could take new software. It could communicate to its sensor just like a nervous system. And the sensors themselves could get a lot smarter in the future by, by, you know, by different sensing. Yes, they have one primitive uh, thing they sense, but how frequently you sense it, et cetera, and how you fuse it with the other sensors, all that learning could move to the edge. So it communicates this data to the cloud where sits an even bigger brain. And now that brain can take this data from thousands of sensors and then learn something new in the floor plan. It's like somebody running. One sensor doesn't know somebody's running because he's out of the sensor's field of view. But if you tie it with the other sensors, you can tell somebody's running. So the, the bigger brain gets a bigger view. It's like a building that you know caught fire in, uh, in uh, again, in the Napa area. We had those horrible Napa fires. And we were installed in two side-by-side -side buildings. And one of them burned to the ground. And we had real-time temperature data from that building showing you where the fire started and which areas of the building got hot before we lost power. And the other building, it heat up, and then it cooled down. And this is really valuable information that if you do get caught in a, in a fire, uh, God forbid, again, which was the coolest part of the building and where would you shelter? And this is real data. It will help the firefighters. It will also help the construction of why this building burnt and the other one did not. What was different? So the applications of a learning building from the same data streams are just immense. Well, Tanush, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you'll come back and see us again. No, I'd love to, and thank you for having me, Moira. My guest today is Tanuj Mohan, co-founder and chief technology officer of Enlighted, a Siemens company based in Silicon Valley. More information is available at enlightedinc.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. It turns out that where you live and how you live 
are far more important than your DNA. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about improving health care for everyone's socioeconomic. Well, welcome back, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Well, we've been talking about all kinds of really nifty, nifty uh, technologies for healthcare and knowing about ourselves and shipping data around. But it strikes me that you have to have literacy, you have to have smartphones, you have to have the ability to connect to things, and you got to have the money to buy it. So what about all of those people that fall below that? Yeah, sort of the the summary you know, of of where we are with disparities and health equity is often bundled under something called social determinants of health. We've talked on the show many times, mostly about exciting health technologies, whether that's gene editing or wearables or big data or AI. It turns out that our health technologies, by most estimates, really impact our overall health by less than fifteen percent. The most important elements are social, um, our physical environment, our social context, our individual behaviors. Um, and less than 25% is really driven by our behaviors, our underlying genome or uh, proteome or microbiome. And it's often sort of summarized that our, our zip code is more important than our genetic code in terms of our likelihood of, of living a, a long, healthy life. In some parts of the country, even different zip codes next to each other. Uh, in New York, the Upper West Side, the average life expectancy is 84, and very nearby in, in East Harlem, it's 76 years. Uh, so, you know, you know these Close huge, by. Very close by, but very different sort of socioeconomic factors are at play. And and, it, and these really provide the core basis of our underlying health. So we need to understand our sociome, not just our genome, if we're really going to start to move the needle on giving everybody uh, better access to care, having care that matches them, their age, their culture, their race. Uh, and um, and then to, once we understand some of the disparities, to help narrow those gaps. I like that sociome. And so once you have that sociome and then you hand people the technology, it's like, are they really going to be able to use it or does it have to be designed in a particular way? I mean, this is a, that's like the second round of oh, wave 2.0. We figured out how to do it the first time for people with money and literacy and, and, and lots of free time on their hands. Now we have to really get down to make it uh, for everyone. Right, and, and sort of understand uh, the basics. Again, uh, there's that Maslow's hierarchy of our physiologic needs, you know, access to healthy food. You know, there's the idea of food deserts. Some, especially inner city areas, might be many miles from uh, any sort of place where you can get fresh vegetables. So fast food becomes the norm. Um, access to, you know, noise pollution impacts sleep and, and development, particularly in kids. Um, access to vaccinations, uh, the context of, you know, tight social connections. All these uh, have many interlaps with our how our epigenetics interact with our genome and our long-term risk. We know that kids who are exposed to what are called adverse events when they're young, it might be something as common as a divorce or horrible abuse or even mild abuse, uh, that impacts the rest of their physio physiology and life going downstream, all tied to their sort of uh, uh, social determinants. And here in the era of the COVID pandemic, we're seeing the impacts of these social disparities, particularly in the African-American community. You know, Blacks essentially in the U.S. are, are about 13% of the U.S. population, but have made up about 23% of all the COVID-19 related deaths, you know, through, through June of, of 2020. Um, and in New York City, 
we're speaking in, in, in early June of 2020, the, the, the number of deaths have been falling, um, but it's still most aggressive uh, in the low income, predominantly minority communities. So, you know, we need to, as part of our intervention, understand those communities and the, the gaps, if we're going to sort of uh, make a dent, not just in COVID, but many other diseases that com- contribute to the comorbidities, which make COVID infections worse. I'd say another element around social disparities we're seeing uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement of the day, you know, the the fact that um, racism is uh, also a public health issue. Um, it could come from police brutality all the way to the um, opportunities that are afforded to folks from education, uh, to uh, African-Americans in the academic uh, cadre who have trouble kind of rising up the ladder. All these things were are, are being raised uh, and enlightened in this particular moment in, in, in particularly in the U.S. history. And so those are also forms of social disparity we need to, to narrow. And the first I think the first key thing is to identify the problem, recognize where our, our biases are, um, and then be able to address them in interesting ways, all the way down to even understanding the neuroscience of, of racial bias, where many folks feel they have no racial bias, but when you put them in an MRI machine or test them, they, they do have implicit bias that um, is, is wired into some folks' brains, maybe maybe uh, evolutionarily, it's hard to, hard to know. There's always sometimes fear of other, but how do we understand those implicit biases and then design them out? Maybe it's getting kids together when they're younger, making sure we're mixing. All those things can play a role in, in reducing um, uh, bias, racism, and um, helping build a, a healthier society. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Mara. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, is a physician scientist and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.